You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Hey guys, so we uh, actually wanted to make a small announcement at the top of the show, which is that we are going to be taking next week off because we have some amazing things in the works for... August and September, and so we wanted those dates to line up, and so we just decided to take a week off. And Plus, you know, it's summer, and summer things happen, and we need time to. Yep, and I will be taking a cruise, Yeah, <laughs> and I need, I need time on a boat alone. <laughs> well, and I have craziness with work starting in like a week or so <laughs> yep so we do apologize that we will not be bringing you a new episode next week but we actually do have our short set that is coming out which includes the haters gonna hate which is not set. really a short set at all no it's not but uh we will even give you the the low down here guys that episode is not going to be for children nope not family friendly. And we do also ask that you guys understand that the the views and opinions expressed on Haters Gonna Hate are those of the podcaster alone. And we don't want to lose any listeners over any of our opinions. So please just know we love you all. We love you all. <laughs> and whatever songs you like that we may not like or artists that, you know, that we don't like that you do like. It's nothing personal. No. And sometimes it's honestly just the song itself, not the artist overall. So that's a little bit of news is... <laughs> a little no, sneak peek into the episode. <laughs> no episode next week. Please don't hate us after the short set. <laughs> well, no episode next Saturday. Yes. Episode next Wednesday instead. Yes. And other than that, on the day that we're recording this today, which is Saturday, yesterday was Dr. Brian May's 75th birthday. There you go. So, yay, queen. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, sir. So, all right, let's just jump right into the episode. There you go. Let's do this. So, um, today we are picking up where we left off last week. And while the first episode covered his life, today we are just going to cover his death and the aftermath. Dun, dun, dun. Don't feel like you need to do that. Why? Because it's... Is that not the ominous mystery music? Mm, I think it's a reveal. It's more of a like ominous reveal. Oh, like it was the cook. Dun dun dun. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Sam Cook. It was the cook. <laughs> oh. oh, whoops. <laughs> I think in this instance, it's fairly certain that it was not the cook. <laughs> Fair enough. So this episode is actually pulled almost exclusively from an article written by Al Hunter on the Weekly View. And that's actually in the show notes for episode one. So if you would like to read it, it was actually a, a two-part article that I pulled from. And so most of the information exclusively comes from that article. And I'm going to try to be as unbiased as possible because there are a lot of elements and players in this game and after he passed there have been 
theories about what happened, and I'm only going to touch on those lightly because, again, they're just theories, and we don't really do theories here. We usually just stick to the facts. But in this case, it was actually the theories are kind of interesting, so I wanted to share them with you. But the views shared in this article are not necessarily the views of Rock and Roll Heaven's podcast. So just take that into consideration. So if you guys remember... Sam Cooke was an outspoken activist within the civil rights movement. He had just played the Copacabana in which he performed This Little Light of Mine, which he had heard in sit-ins and walkouts all over the country, and he played it to the people that he felt needed to hear it the most. And so coming off the heels of what he would consider a successful concert, as opposed to the first time that he actually played the Copa where he bombed, he was kind of riding high on that success. Yeah. And so... On the night of December 11th, 1964, Cook walked into the home of friend and musician Lou Rawls, who he helped him write Bring It On Home, where Rawls was sitting in a room with his baby and a dog. Okay. Yeah, well, it makes sense in a minute. Okay. When Cook walked in, the baby started crying and the dog walked out. And you know, they say babies now and animals. Now can I dun-dun-dun. Yes. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Well, you know, they always say, like, babies and animals know there's something wrong. Like, yeah. Even if, if even if we don't know it, the, the animals know they it. They sense it. Yeah. It was though they sensed the tragedy that was about to come. Hours later, in the middle of the night, Rawls received a phone call. Cook had been shot, and he was dead. The sad story begins at 9 p.m. on Thursday, December 10th, 1964. Everybody in Martoni's Italian restaurant had their eyes on Sam Cook. In his slight divorce suit, the 33-year-old R&B singer cut a dashing figure with his recent live at the copa album climbing the charts sam was on the brink of stepping up to the big leagues a crossover figure on par with nat king cole and sammy davis jr sam was having dinner with producer al schmidt and smith's wife joan which i believe they actually divorced eventually okay (laughs) at martoni's restaurant off sunset boulevard in hollywood so they said that when they were having dinner like Everybody was paying attention to Sam because at this time he had gained a lot of notoriety where he was the second best-selling artist behind Elvis Presley and he had all of these chart-climbing successes. He was friends with Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. So he was a known figure. And I think I touched on it a little bit in my notes, but he had on him wads of cash, like thousands of dollars like like he would pull his his he would reach into his pocket pull out a handful of money and Joan was like put that back in your pocket what are you doing don't do that well yeah it's first of all it's not real classy second of all it's dangerous (laughs) well I mean I think we can agree that four martinis in which I think I make note of this when I jump back into the article four martinis in I've done some stupid things. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That is true. I have overtipped many a waiter. I have done some... Oh, that's just my norm. (laughs) I just overtip anyways, usually. I have done some questionable karaoke. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't we all? I mean, have you ever been so drunk that you thought it would be a really good idea to do Climb Every Mountain from The Sound of Music? No, but I would... uh... I would uh, not be surprised if you did. <laughs> oh. Which I did. <laughs> Doesn't shock me one little bit. <laughs> nope. 
so well-wishers kept stopping by the table and interrupting their conversation. Sam, who had already had three or four martinis, eventually made his way over to the bar. When the food arrived for Al, he went to go get Sam and found him laughing and swapping stories with a group of friends and music business associates. Sam was buying, and he would flash a wad of bills, and it looked like thousands of dollars. And we're not talking about, like, a couple hundred. It was, like, a wad of cash. Right. And I should say at this point that Al and Joan are actually, well, at the time of, at the recording of that great documentary, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, Al and uh, Joan both talk about this night. And so, again, I urge you to go... Check out The Two Killings of Sam Cooke because it is an excellent documentary. At a booth near the bar, Sam caught the eye of a baby-faced 22-year-old Asian girl. And for some reason, they pointed out that her mother was Chinese and her father was English. She was five foot three and 112 pounds. Okay. I don't know if that necessarily needed to be pointed out by that article, but all right. Well, we know a lot about her. We really? Know, we actually know a lot about her. Why? Because of what happens later on in the story. Okay. Yeah. So she's five foot three, 112 pounds, and was sitting with three guys. Sam was actually certain that he'd seen her before. And this is one of those things where like a little bit of speculation gets peppered in. People say that some people say that this is the first night he had ever met her. Others say that he had been dating her for three to four weeks. So I found conflicting articles. So even. His closest friends don't know what the real answer is. Oh, fair enough. One of the guys, a guitar player that Sam knew, introduced her as Elisa Boyer. Sam sat down next to her, and before long, the pair were laughing, drinking, and snuggling in the booth like a pair of teenagers at a drive-in. Sam never returned to the dinner with the Schmitz, but promised that he'd meet them at a nearby nightclub for cocktails. I think at this point that I should probably point out that Sam's still married. Is he? Yep. I thought he divorced that wife. Yeah, and then he married his high school sweetheart. I thought he divorced her after no. the kid drowned. When would he have had time to? Oh. Kid drowned, 1964. Sam died, 1964. Oh. Yeah. Naughty Sam. Yeah. The inebriated couple left Martoni's around 1 a.m. in Sam's brand new Ferrari, which I talked about in the last episode. And he headed to meet the Schmitz at a nightclub called PJ's. That bar should also sound familiar. Why is that, LD? Well, I'm glad you asked, TJ, because that's the same <laughs> bar that Bobby Fuller went to. Oh, intrigue. So, between Bob Keen and PJ's, we have some overlap in episodes. Hmm. Hmm. Curious. Curious. Stop the stop stealing my thoughts. <laughs> it's what it's what I do. This is what happens when you're friends as long as we've been. <laughs> <laughs> right. By the time they arrived, the Smiths were already gone. They kind of stuck it out for as long as they could, but it got too late for them, and so they headed out. In the club, Sam got into a heated argument with some guy who was hitting on Boyer. She asked Sam to take her home, and they left at 2 a.m. Oh, I was just going to say about the Schmitz leaving, it, may, it makes sense. At that time, you don't have cell phones to be able to text your friends, be like, where are you? Are you coming? Are you on your way? Like, where are you? Yeah, it's 19. So you don't know when they're going to show up, and it's like, okay, enough. We're out. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because it's 1964, and it was funny because I was rewatching Stranger Things, and no one calls anyone on that show <laughs> except for like there's like two phone calls in that whole show. Yeah, 
and you're like, how did you track your kids? Because I grew up in the 80s. How did you track us? Like, well, how, I don't, how are we tracked? I don't really watch the show, but I did, like, my fiance watches it, and I caught a couple, like, in the background moments with him. And I think it was very accurate when the when the mom, Winona Ryder's character, goes to the other mom and is like, where are the kids? Oh, who knows these days? No. <laughs> like, well, that's, you know. Yeah, I mean. It's like, well, I they started there, and then they went there, and then now who knows? I don't know where they are anymore. And a change is going to come. Dun 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 So they left. Uh, so they left. Mar- they they left the club PJs at around two a.m., which is closing time in California, isn't it? Bar closing time. Yeah. According to Boyer, Sam sped down Santa Monica Boulevard and, against protest, pulled onto the freeway. She later told police that she had asked to be taken home, but Sam said, "Don't worry now. I just want to go for a little ride." He stroked her hair and told her how pretty she was. Ugh. I now know how I feel about that. Also, he's like. F- at least four cocktails in. At, so, well, yeah, he was four cocktails in before he went to PJ's. Met, met up with her, like yeah, in the booth, and then they went, then they stayed there, and then they went to PJ's. Like, yeah, I think it's safe to assume he's had quite a few. Uh, but also, I just don't like the my little feminist rage tingles. At the idea of being asked to be taken home and then, oh, don't worry about it. You're so pretty. Like, uh-uh. Okay. Uh-uh. Playing devil's advocate for a second. <laughs> Remember, there are two sides to the story. I know. But only one is getting told. I know. And literally everyone who knew Sam Cooke said that that wasn't him. That was not the kind of guy he was. Okay. Yeah, he had infidelity in his past. But the fact was that he had never been aggressive like he would it was like it would be like you saying that I did something aggressive like it's just it's not in my nature to be aggressive yeah that's true so that's why I'm saying like it's oh no I definitely always like to look at both sides but just the way that that was presented makes me go yeah and if it's true (laughs) it's gross but again it's coming from she was the only one that's alive in that like still alive in that car right so, they exited the highway at Figueroa Street near LAX. Man, that's far. Yeah. Well, not in the middle of the night on the freeway. Yeah, fair enough. Because then there's in not the really... In the 60s. In the 60s, there's <laughs> not really the traffic that there is now. Yeah. And in the middle of the night, there's still not as much traffic. So, you can get pretty far pretty quickly. Yeah. Boyer asked to be taken home again. But Sam drove 70 miles south of Hollywood to the Hacienda Motel in gritty south central Los Angeles. The Hacienda didn't get a lot of customers in brand new Ferraris, and it was a $3 a night dive on Figueroa Street. That <sighs> continues. It's the kind of place where the desk clerk would keep a gun handy. Probably, yeah. A no-tell motel. Uh, yeah. I think I heard somewhere that they actually rented by the hour. Oh, my. There was a sign outside that actually said, everyone welcome. Defined by the vernacular of that era, everyone meant African Americans. He got out of the car and walked up to the glass partition at the manager's office while Boyer remained in the car. He registered under his own name with a clerk, 55-year-old Bertha Franklin. It seemed odd that he would register under his own name. Yeah, and 
again, Hollywood Crime Scene did an episode on this and basically said that not only did he sign in under his name, but because of the era, they wouldn't rent a room to people that weren't married. So he put Elisa as his wife. And it's, uh, yeah. But I guess if he is still married, that would negate, like the whole thing seemed out of like, you're getting a hotel room. Why are you getting a sketchy hotel room in the middle of not the greatest area? But then also, you know, I was trying to think like, why wouldn't you just take her back to your place or go back to her place? But I mean, he can't go to his place because he's married still. Yeah. And but like, why don't there are this seems suspect already. There are theories. Yeah. So hold. Okay. Hold that thought. Franklin eyed Boyer in the car and told Sam that he'd have to sign and as he would have to sign in as Mr. and Mrs. if they wanted to stay there. Right. So if they wanted to stay, they had to be husband and wife, even though she was kind of turning a blind eye to it. But right. Just on paper, she wanted to make it look decent. According to Boyer's account, Sam drove around to the back of the motel. Boyer claimed that he then dragged her into the room, pinned her on the bed, and started to tear her clothes off. I knew he was going to rape me, she told the police. She went into the bathroom and tried to lock the door, but the latch was broken. She tried the window, but it was painted shut. When she came out, Sam was already undressed. He groped her and then went into the bathroom himself. Boyer, only wearing a slip and a bra, picked up her clothes and ran out of the room. Boyer said that she began to pound on the night manager's door, but got no answer. At the time, Bertha Franklin was talking onto the phone to the owner of the property, Evelyn Carr. She told Carr, wait a minute, and went to answer the door, but no one was there. Franklin picked up the phone and continued her phone call. Boyer, afraid that Cook would soon come after her, didn't wait for around, did not wait around for Bertha to open up the door. She ran around the corner and up the street about a half a block, dumped the pile of clothes onto the ground, and got dressed. Tangled in the pile that she picked up were Sam's shirt, pants, and underwear, along with his wallet, and most likely the wad of cash that Al Schmidt had seen in Martoni's. She stashed them under the stairwell, found a phone booth, and called the police. Boyer's call was logged in at 3.08 a.m. Will you please come down to this number? I don't know where I am. I've been kidnapped. At that instant, Sam Cook roared up to Franklin's office in his Ferrari. He left the motor running and the driver's door open. He was wearing his sports jacket, one shoe, and nothing else. He pounded on the door screaming, Is the girl in there? According to Franklin, Sam began to twist the doorknob wildly and ran the door with his shoulder. The frame ripped loose and the latch gave way. Sam charged in, looking for Boyer. Franklin, still on the phone with Evelyn Carr, told Cook that she didn't know where the girl was. Franklin told the police later, he just kept saying, where was the girl? I told him to get the police if he wanted to search my place. He said, damn the police, and started working the door with his shoulder. It wasn't long before he was in. When he walked in, he walked straight into the kitchen, and then he came back and went into the bedroom. When he came out, I was standing there in the floor, and he grabbed both of my arms, twisting them and asking me where the girl was. In the floor? That's what it says. Standing there in the floor. But it's a quote, so. Yeah, it's a quote. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. When I read it, it was a little weird. But I guess she was like. Maybe she meant like in the middle of the yeah room or the floor or whatever. Yeah. If it's a quote also, she could have been like, I was standing in the floor just waiting there. And like, think of, you have yeah. to think about like, if her story is true, the trauma that she just went through. Right. Because you had this guy. For one thing, I don't know if I believe that Bertha Franklin didn't know who Sam Cooke was on site. Well, 
Yeah. But there's a lot of people that I wouldn't know what they look like. Musicians and stuff. There's some of them. I have no clue what they look like because I don't necessarily watch the music videos or look at like all the gossip and the celebrity news and stuff. Like I I wouldn't know most of the time. Yeah. Because I just listen to, <clears throat> I listen to the music. I don't really care what they look like. I only know what dead celebrities look like. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> you also have to remember that through this all, Evelyn Carr's actually still on the phone. Right. Because this all went down when Bertha was on the phone with her. And so she put the phone down. So she's listening to the whole thing while she's on the phone. Through the phone, yeah. Yeah. Bertha Franklin, though shorter than Sam, actually outweighed him by about 30 pounds. She would later tell the police, he fell on top of me and I tried to bite him through the jacket, biting, scratching and everything. Finally, I got up. When I kicked him, I ran and grabbed the pistol off the TV and I shot at close range three times. Two of the bullets missed, but one entered Sam's left side, passing through his heart and right lung. Sam fell back and in astonishment uttered his last words. Lady, you shot me. Sam rose one last time and charged at her, but she repelled his attack with several hard blows to the head and face with a broomstick, and this time he stayed down. Dang. Sam stood upright again for one moment, stared off into the distance, and slowly slid down to the floor, his head coming to rest against the splintered door jamb that he had kicked just moments before. Evelyn Carr then hung up and called the police at 3.15 a.m., advising them that I think she shot him. It was December 11th, 1964, two weeks before Christmas, and Sam Cooke was dead at the age of 33. Soul Music's greatest voice was silenced forever. The police arrived with wailing sirens and flashing lights to find Sam Cooke dead on the scene. Soon afterwards, Elisa Boyer walked up and presented herself to the officers as the girl. Personal inventory of Cooke's corpse included a wristwatch and a jacket with a money clip containing $108, and some loose change in the pocket. And a single shoe found by the police. And a bottle of scotch and a copy of the newspaper Muhammad Speaks. In the back seat of Sam's cherry red Ferrari. The pile of clothes that Elisa said that she stashed under the stairwell would never found. As was Cook's wallet containing a driver's license and credit cards. No subsequent purchases were ever made with the cards. That's just a little note. A search of Boyer's purse showed that she had only had a $20 bill. Sam Cook is believed to have retrieved $5,000 in cash from a safety deposit box earlier that day. And Al Schmidt reported that Sam was flashing about $1,000 at the bar the night before. It has never been determined where that money actually went. Is it possible that he spent it? Well, like, did he spend it on the Ferrari? Did he spend it no, no, on no, all no. the cocktails and dinners and everything? Oh, no, he already had the Ferrari. The Ferrari oh, was right. a purchase that was long ago. Yeah. No, but there are theories so hold tight. Okay. Even if I don't cover it in There's my There's so many questions. I know, and it, it doesn't get any better. Aw. Womp womp. At 6 a.m., Sam's widow, Barbara, greeted the news with hysterics, trying to shield their two young children from reporters and fans who were gathering at the house. At a coroner's inquest five days later, Elisa Boyer, Bertha Franklin, Evelyn Carr, and other witnesses recounted their stories in a short hearing that barely allowed Sam's lawyer enough time to ask one question. In just two hours, the inquest was complete. Tests show at the time of death, Sam's blood alcohol level was 0.16, which is a lot. <sighs> it's twice the legal limit for driving. Yeah. And the shooting, I mean, the legal limit for driving is... 0.08. Yeah. 
Is it not that much though? I don't. I've never given myself like, like okay, so because the legal, yeah, the legal driving is like two beers. Yeah, for someone of average height and weight. I don't actually. <laughs> I don't even remember what it's like to be drunk because I haven't had any alcohol in four years. So oh, I know. <laughs> I know I'm a fuddy-duddy now, but I never had a breathalyzer test. Yeah, I so would be. <laughs> I'm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the level is for people. Yeah, I mean, you really can't have that much and then still drive a car. But yeah, obviously. Um, so to get to a point one six alcohol level is ten drinks, but you have to. But like the time not drinking brings that back, so he would have had to have. So I mean, that well would make over that. That would make sense because it seemed like he went to two different locations, and he had the bottle of booze in the car. Yeah, and he was at least four drinks in at Martoni's. And it, yeah, so it's really complicated to say too because the the alcohol calculations are different. But it's a pro, it's roughly ten drinks to get to point one six, and then subtract. Point zero one percent for each forty minutes of drinking, and like you subtract, yeah, it's a whole, it's a very complicated calculation. But essentially, at time of death, his blood alcohol level was still equivalent to roughly ten drinks. Okay, well, either way, his blood alcohol level was through the roof, really high, really high. And so, at the inquest, the shooting was actually ruled a justifiable homicide, and the case was closed. That seems rushed. But there's so many questions here still. Get get to the get to the yeah. theories. I want to hear this. I want to hear what people have to say about this. Okay, well, let's bury him first. Oh, okay. Sam's L.A. funeral included three days of viewing. His $4,000 casket was specially fitted with a glass top to allow his friends, including the heavyweight boxing champion Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, one last look. Cook's remains were flown to Chicago for a funeral service in his hometown and then returned to Hollywood for another funeral. And from what I read, I cut it out of my notes, but apparently the one in L.A. was kind of shoddy and rushed. And so that's why they flew him back to Chicago. The Staple Singers, Lou Rawls, Billy Preston, and Ray Charles all presented musical tributes to Sam. Sam Cooke's body was buried in the Garden of Honor in Hollywood's Forest Lawn Cemetery, just a few miles away from his home. Have you ever been to Forest Lawn? I have not. I see it every day from work, though. It's beautiful. Uh, He rests alongside some of the biggest names in the history of Hollywood. Clark Gable, Carol Lombard, Jimmy Stewart, Gene Harlow, Humphrey Bogart, Mary Pickford, Errol Flynn, Spencer Tracy, George Burns, and his wife Gracie Allen, W.C. Fields, Tom Mix, Sammy Davis Jr., Walt Disney, Rhett Skelton, Ted Knight, Nat King Cole, William Boyd, Louis L'Amour, and Wizard of Oz author L. Frank Baum. So if you're ever interested in going to Hollywood forever, there's a lot of celebrities buried there. And that's not including Carrie Fisher. But my, my big draw was Carrie Fisher. <laughs> Although he sang like one, Sam Cooke was no angel. He was always known as a womanizer. And his friend Bump, Bumps Blackwell once said, Sam would walk past a good girl to get to a hooker. <sighs> but we don't use that phrase anymore. It's now sex worker because that is a derogative term. Is it? Yes. You no longer say prostitute. You no longer say hooker. It is sex worker because those words vilify the work that they do. Okay. Over the span of a five-week period from March to April 1952, three young women each gave birth to a daughter fathered by Cook. He was beset by paternity lawsuits up until his death 
and most were quietly settled with payoffs. And that's what I was talking about. The There are some things that can be argued, and there are some things that cannot. And that's well, one of them. Maybe that was where the cash went. Maybe he had. No, it, it, a disappeared in, it disappeared in one night. Despite his gospel roots, he epitomized the Hollywood lifestyle live fast, die young, and leave a, a good looking corpse. Well, I'm already out. <laughs> There's still hope for me. <laughs> As for Barbara Cook, her husband's infidelity was nothing new to her, and likewise, she was no angel herself. Keep in mind that the couple was still dealing with the loss of their toddler son, Vincent, who had drowned in the pool of their family's Hollywood home, a tragedy that many say that Sam was still blaming her for. So they had that turmoil boiling in their marriage. Right. At the time of Sam's tragic death, she was actually having an affair with a local bartender. On the day of Sam's funeral, friends and family were aghast with her paramour who showed up wearing Sam's ring and the watch he was wearing at the time of his death. So at his at her husband's funeral, she shows up with her lover and her lover's wearing Sam Cook's ring and watch. That's messed up. Yeah. That's just not right. No. True, 50 years ago, Sam Cook was in a place where he didn't belong, preparing to commit an immoral act with a woman who was not his wife. While unacceptable in polite society, it was sadly not uncommon in the entertainment world. And we've heard this story time and time again, and we're going to continue hearing it time and time again. Oh, yeah. It is not a new story. On January, It's not exclusive to the music industry. Nope. Or celebrity in any way, shape, or form. Nope. On January 11th, 1965, exactly one month after Cook was shot, Elisa Boyer was arrested for prostitution at a Hollywood motel after agreeing by phone to have sex with an undercover cop for $40. The Hacienda Motel, which offered $3 per hour rate, was a well-known hangout for sex workers. The night clerk, Bertha Franklin, had a pass of her own, as she was an ex-madam with a criminal record. Whether Elisa and Bertha knew each other is a matter of speculation, but based on their backgrounds, it seems likely that they were in it together. Yeah, it seems more likely that this was a ploy and she, you know, this is my own opinion, my own thoughts on this. It seems much more likely that she stole his money, which is why he was mad and like trying to find her. Yeah. So this goes back to what I was saying. Sam Cooke actually had two funerals at the Mount Sinai Baptist Church in Los Angeles. A crowd of 5,000 people, some who had arrived five hours before the scheduled last rites, overran the facility designated to accommodate 1,500. In an emotion-packed atmosphere supercharged by the singing of Lou Rawls, Bobby Blue Band, and Arthur Lee Simpkins, women fainted, tears ran down men's cheeks, and onlookers shouted. Bessie Griffin, who was to appear on the funeral program, became so grief stricken that she actually had to be carried off. So his death really affected people. Well, yeah. Which is, it, that goes back to the statement that was made that it doesn't seem like this was Sam Cook. Like the aggression that happened seems out of character for Sam. It seems more likely that that was a falsified account. And let me, let me make this abundantly clear at this point in the episode. We are not victim shaming no in no way shape or form are we saying there's no way she's that there's no way that he could have done this and she's completely in the wrong blah 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 we're not victim shaming we're going on like official reports statements made it just the conviction that she had 
makes it apparent that she was a sex worker. It's all hearsay, but so many people say that Sam Cooke was a great man and that he wasn't an aggressor. So this seems out of character for Sam to do that. And by all means, we weren't there. We're not saying it didn't happen. Exactly. We're just our own, like, from looking at it all, it seems, you know, our opinion seems that it would be out of character. But we weren't there. We don't know. We're not shaming anybody. We're not trying to say that this is the way it was either. So So after what can be uh, best described as a shoddy job done by Los Angeles morticians, Cook's body was actually flown back to Chicago, where an estimated 20,000 fans, as well as family and friends, gathered for the viewing on December 18th at the Tabernacle Baptist Church. The service was performed by Reverend Clay Evans, who himself had been a member of the Highway QCs. Remember the, that's... Right, his childhood group. Yeah, it was literally the second musical group that he belonged to. Yeah. The Staple Singers sang Old Rugged Cross with Mavis Staple in tears throughout. Afterward, the body was flown back to Los Angeles for a second service the next day, and this one took place at the Mount Sinai Baptist Church. So here comes some of the more interesting points of his death. On February 24th, 1964, 66 days after Cook was buried, his widow married Bobby Womack. Interesting. Remember I told you to remember that name? Uh, What happened to the bartender? Doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Sam's 21-year-old guitar player and backup singer, Womack later said that he wed Barbara out of sympathy, fearing that she might be suicidal if left alone. The couple divorced in 1970. Strangely, Cook's daughter, Linda, later married Bobby Womack's brother, Cecil, and they enjoyed a modest, a modestly successful career as the sole duo known as Womack and Womack. But there's more to the story. Cook's family was livid when Bobby and Barbara married, so much so that the, the Cook brothers met the couple in a Chicago hotel and beat Womack senseless. Oh my goodness. According to Womack's biography, Midnight Mover, he would sneak out of his bedroom at night to carry on a tryst with stepdaughter Linda. Gross! <laughs> When Barbara found out, she held a gun to his head, ordering him out of the house. As he ran toward the garage, she fired one shot, grazing Bobby's scalp. And that's why they divorced, which I think is justifiable. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's a good reason for divorce, sleeping with the daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ugh. Linda went on to marry uh, Cecil, and she actually never spoke to her mother again. That's just part of the Cook tragic legacy. That's kind of twisted. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a whole lot of family stuff that I, yeah, 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 just stay out of. Borderline incestual, but yeah, I mean, I guess not quite. They're not blood related, but no, but it's no, it's still it's a still little, a little twisted. The whole stepdad thing is yeah. gross. Yeah. Bertha Franklin was forced to quit her job at the Hacienda Motel after receiving several death threats. She filed a $200,000 lawsuit against Sam Cooke's estate for punitive damages and injuries, but lost. Good. <laughs> Sorry. Not going to get behind you on that one. Wait, what happened? She sued Sam Cooke's estate for $20,000 or $200,000. What? Or Bertha. Bertha did? Yeah. What? So she shoots the guy, kills him, and then she sues the family. No, 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 no. 
<laughs> That's not how this works, honey bunny. Yeah, sorry. She moved to Michigan where she died a year and a half later of a massive coronary. I'm not sure whatever happened to the Hacienda Hotel owner, Evelyn Carr, but as far as I can tell, the Hacienda Motel is still around, and to this day it's known as the Star Motel on Figueroa Street in Los Angeles. What about Sam's car? It is rumored, and this is a great tie-in for about two episodes from now, it was rumored that Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys later bought Cook's Red Ferrari, a two, it's the Red Ferrari 250 GTL Lusso. Wilson was a huge fan of Sam Cooke and supposedly routinely drove around L.A. in the car listening to Cooke's music. On December 28, 1983, a drunken Wilson drowned in Marina del Rey. Sam's car was parked nearby. In 2000, the car sold to a Japanese collector for an undisclosed but reportedly world record sum. So the car made its rounds. So yeah. it went from Sam Cooke to Dennis Wilson to a, a collector for a major amount of money. I mean, that's a car with a major pedigree, though. Yeah. Now, Elisa Boyer continued to rack up a long rap sheet using multiple aliases. Lisa Boyer, Lisa Lee, Crystal Chang Young, and Elise Nakama. She had a reputation in the underground as a role artist. Posing as a prostitute, she would lure John into a motel. The minute that he stepped out of the room or fell asleep after the act, she would rob him and then take his clothes so that he would be less inclined to pursue her. Sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Hmm. In 1979, Elisa Boyer was found guilty of second-degree murder in the death of her boyfriend. She is jailed today, serving a 25-to-life sentence for that crime. Well, at least there's some justice. Is it getting a little weirder for you? A little bit. Okay, so I'm going to get into some theories, but again, they're theories, and... There were a lot of them, so I'm going to touch on a couple. But again, I'll say it one more time. These are theories, not facts. So don't sue me. There are all <laughs> kinds of theories. <laughs> or send us mean messages. Please don't send us mean messages. You know who you are. There are all kinds of theories around his death. A drug deal involving someone close to Sam, which Sam tried to intervene. A mafia hit. A setup device by a jealous Barbara Cook. There are tons of them. Many people believe that it was a racist plot in the entertainment business. As with any rising stars, not to mention one of color in the 1960s, Sam made some enemies. One woman, a friend of his, said that he was just getting too big for his britches. So he deserved to be killed by a potential prostitute? Well, okay, if you go... if I, I've mentioned this several times <laughs> in the podcast already, but in the Two Killings of Sam Cooke, the whole he's too big for his britches kind of thing came because of his activism was because his voice was becoming too loud. And just like just like Martin Luther King Jr., just like Malcolm X, just like, I mean, even Abraham Lincoln. That's true. They were silenced because of their views. And it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that could have been a thing was that he was becoming a voice for an uprising, and people had to be silenced. And that's what they did, which is one of the worst things. Yeah. Stop killing people, people. Yeah, be nice to each other. Because also, if that chick had the broom handy, she could have just knocked him out and waited for the cops to come. She didn't have to shoot him. Or no kill shot. Shoot, yeah. him, in the, shoot him in the knee. Well, that's not true. Technically, you can get in more trouble for that. What? 
Yeah. Uh, you would think it would be better to shoot to wound versus shoot to kill, but you can actually get in more trouble legally for that. Thinking behind it being that if you are shooting to kill is because you genuinely believe yourself to be in danger. So you should be trying to like if you if there's any reason at all for you to discharge your weapon, it should be that you are believe yourself to be in so much danger that they need to go down. Um, so you can actually get yourself in more trouble shooting to wound versus shooting to kill. That seems a little off. I agree. I agree. I think it would be better to shoot to wound to get them to back off. Yeah. I'm... Until proper action could be taken. But I will say this, and I've never expressed this on the podcast before, but I'm a Christian and I believe in the Ten Commandments, which says thou shalt not kill. I don't want to have to kill someone. Like right. I'd rather, I'd, I, honestly, I'd rather get into more trouble by shooting someone in the knee than actually killing someone. Yeah. So was Sam lured into a trap at the Hacienda Motel? Were Elisa Boyer and Bertha Franklin working in tandem? Was Barbara Cook involved somehow? Or was it just a tragic accident? Over the years, various investigations have made noise about reopening the case, but with most of its principal players dead and gone now, it seems unlikely that it will ever be solved. Byer's story is the only account of what happened between her and Cook that night. However, the story has been long called into question. Inconsistencies between her versions of events and details reported by diners at Martoni's restaurant where Cook dined and drank earlier that evening suggested that Boyer may have gone along willing to the motel with Cook and then slipped out of the room with her clothing in order to rob him rather than to escape an attempted rape. Cook was reportedly carrying much more money in Martoni's than the $108 found at his death scene. However, questions about Boyer's role were beyond the scope of the inquest, the purpose of which was only to establish the circumstances of Franklin's role in the shooting. Boyer leaving the room with almost all of Cook's clothing and the fact that the tests show that he was inebriated at the time provided a plausible explanation to the inquest jurors for Cook's bizarre behavior and the state of dress. In addition, because of Carr's testimony which corroborated Franklin's version of the events, became both Boyer's and Franklin's later passing a polygraph test, the coroner's jury ultimately accepted Franklin's explanation and returned a verdict of justifiable homicide. With that verdict, the authorities officially closed the case on Sam's death. Some of Cook's family and supporters, however, have rejected Boyer's version of events, as well as those given by Franklin and Carr. They believe that there is a conspiracy to murder Cook and that murder took place somewhere in a manner entirely different from the three official accounts. Singer Etta James viewed Cook's body before the funeral and questioned the accuracy of the official version of events. She wrote, The injuries that she observed were well beyond the official account of Cook having fought Franklin alone. James wrote that Cook was so badly beaten that his head was nearly separated from his shoulders, his hands were broken and crushed, and his nose was mangled. Some people have speculated that Cook's manager, Alan Klein, might have had a role in his death as well. Klein owned Tracy Limited, which ultimately owned all of the rights to Cook's recording. No concrete evidence supporting a criminal conspiracy has been presented to date. Not to mention, somewhere around along the way, Keen was involved, which from the Bobby Fuller episode, we know he had ties to this mafia thing. And Yeah. Well, the questions don't get answered, and I think that's what's so frustrating, is that, like, what happened to... The money that was in his pocket. What actually happened to his clothes because they never found them. Where did she go after he left the room? There's actually uh, one report that I read that the chances are that 
Elisa did not intend on him dying. She was intending on robbing him. And so I read in a couple reports that there was a possibility that Elisa had a, a scam going and basically she would pick up a John and have her pimp tail her to whatever hotel she went to, in this case, the Hacienda. And she would wait until Sam had either fallen asleep or gone to the bathroom and she would throw his clothes out into the pimp's car and then she would take off. And that's one theory. There are just, there's so many questions that don't get answered. And that's what makes all these theories kind of floating around. There's just so many, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, there's just so many suspicious aspects to this story. I mean, because honestly, you could even add into the fact that it's like, maybe she didn't intend for him to get killed. Maybe this is something that they normally, that they regularly did. And then they created this story like that maybe he died before they even made the calls. And then they had her run to a payphone and make that call. And then, you know, waited enough time for all this to happen and have Bertha make her call. Like, you have all these different things that could have happened there. There's just so many suspicious, so many missing pieces that it just makes it... Yeah, was... Completely... Was Elise working with a pimp to steal his money? Was she working with Bertha? Was the FBI or CIA involved? Was it someone that was against the, you know, was was Bertha paid off to take him out because he was becoming too much of a voice in the civil rights movements? So many unanswered questions. You have another factor of was Evelyn Carr somehow in cahoots since she was supposedly on the phone with Bertha, maybe... If Bertha was a madam and the Hacienda was known to be a place for sex workers to go, maybe Evelyn Carr, the owner of the property, was getting a cut. Like, possibly. And that they didn't want this to be exposed because then that all goes away. Like, yeah. And then, and that's kind of where I'm going to close off conspiracy corner because, in the end, what this is is a sad story of a beautiful man who while he wasn't an angel was trying to take steps to make life better for other people and that's really what this is about he was killed at age 33 he had his whole life in front of him he was making a difference in society he was making changes in the landscape of America and he wasn't going to have his voice shouted down and it all ended at the Hacienda Motel at 308 on the night of December 11th. And that's really what this is about. So I, I didn't want to end on such a sad note. And I thought instead that I would talk about Sam's accolades. Yeah. So some quick facts. Some we like fun to, we, facts. We like to put those in at the end of the episode so we're not so such a downer. Yeah. So here are some quick facts, some fun facts. Uh, Sam Cooke's single, You Send Me, was released on September 7th. So the song is a Virgo. <laughs> In 1957, by Keen Records and received huge commercial success. It topped Billboard's R&B charts and Billboard's Hot 100 charts and also ranks 115 in Rolling Stones magazines, the 500 greatest songs of all time in April 2010. Can a song have a sign? Yes. Okay. It was its birthday. Okay. A Change is Gonna Come was released on December 22nd, 1964 by RCA Victor. And in 2007, the song was selected, and this is huge, 
The song was selected for preservation in the Library of Congress with the National Recording Registry, deeming the song culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. That's massive because I'm not... It's I'm, huge. Yeah. They do that to film, and when I hear film has been inducted into the National Registry, it just I feel like, yeah, that's huge. Mm-hmm. In 1986, Sam Cooke was posthumously inducted as a charter member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The following year, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. In 1999, he posthumously received the Grammy for Lifetime Achievement Awards for his uh, valuable contribution to music. In 2008, Rolling Stone named him the fourth greatest singer of all time. A portion of 36th Street in Chicago, where he sang as a teenager, has been renamed as Sam Cooke Way in his honor. I love that. That's great. That's awesome. And this is this is different. He was actually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Soul Stirrers under the category of Early Influencers, and that was in 1989. He was voted the 16th greatest rock and roll artist of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. He was a huge influence on other R&B and rock and roll singers. Among others, Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye consider him a favorite. Ugh, that makes sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Posthumously inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame at Cleveland State University in 2013. Following his untimely death, he was interred at the Garden of Honor at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. He was posthumously awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for recording. And I got the address like we were trying to find yeah. Johnny Cash's address. This actually has an address. Nice. You can find his star at 7051 Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And he was given that on February 1st, 1994. He was actually mentioned in the 1974 song, A Life is a Rock, But the Radio Rolled Me by Reunion. And he has contributed to at least 160 soundtracks, according to IMDb.com. A Change is Gonna Come is said to have been played at the funeral for Malcolm X and at the home of Rosa Parks upon the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. More recently, it was actually played at the inauguration celebration in Washington when we elected our first black president. Yeah! Two months after his death, his song Shake peaked at number seven on the pop chart. Cook's songs have been covered by both rock and roll and soul singers, and A Change is Gonna Come was released in 65 after his death and charted at number 31, which is crazy because you would think it would chart much higher. In 1993, he was the recipient of the Chairman's Award from the Apollo Theater Foundation. In 99, he received the first Pioneer Award from the Rhythm and Blues Foundation and the NARAS Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2001, saw proclamations in Los Angeles County, Mississippi, and Chicago declaring December 17th, Sam Cooke Day. In 2003, Sam Cooke Legend, which was the documentary that we talked about in episode one, actually won a Grammy for Best Long Form Music Video. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Over the years, his opus, A Change is Gonna Come, has garnered widespread adulation and in 2005 was voted number 12 by representatives of the music industry and the press in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time and voted number three in Webzine's Pitchfork Media, the 200 Greatest Songs of the 60s. The song is currently ranked as the 46th Greatest Song of All Time and as well as the third best song of 1964 by acclaimed music. NPR called the song one of the most important songs of the civil rights era. Sam's music has been recorded by many artists, including 
Aretha Franklin, the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Bobby Walmack, Tina Turner, the Supremes, Otis Redding, James Taylor, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Nas, Patti LaBelle, Ray Charles, Art Garfunkel, uh, Caught a Ghost, The Band, Eric Clapton, and George Benson. And his compositions have been featured in numerous films and TV shows, including Animal House, Witness, Malcolm X, Presenting the Princess Shaw, Treme, The Gods of Wall Street, American Idol, The X Factor, and The Voice, as well as in the Olivier nominated play One Night in Miami. And that concludes the story of Sam Cooke. Oh, I got a round of applause. <laughs> well, so I think in summation, Sam Cooke was a pioneer, an entrepreneur. He carved away for so many people to have the careers that they have today. He made an impact on people socially, and he was one of the, the people that was taking a stand against something that we shouldn't have had to have had a fight over anyway. Everyone should have had equal rights, and he was a master at what he did. His voice is unmistakable, beautiful. I still listen to him this day, and it's, it's one of those tragedies that in the end there might be so, so many questions that don't get answered and probably never will. But we have his music, and I'm so thankful for that. Me too. And he did have an amazing career, you know, considering how young he he was when he passed. He still had an amazing career before that, which, you know, I'm glad for. It just makes me sad because there could have been so much more. Oh, yeah. And we won't get that. We'll never know. Yeah. (sighs) Be kind to each other, guys. Um, So I think that is about it. Thank you so much, guys, for checking out this episode. Check us out next week, guys. Uh, We might have something special for you coming up. We're still trying to figure out the logistics of it. So if we could do it, awesome. If not, forget you heard this. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Here's our social stuff. If you guys would like to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rockandrolllt. You can find us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. Or you could email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Guys, have a great week. We love you very much. Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy. Yeah. Go eat. Yes, please. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. But I know
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 